0: Well, thank you for coming and uh, again for having me uh, speak with you here and and I sound I sound a tiny bit nervous. I realized at lunch that this is one of the few times I've actually I very often fly to some random place, plunk myself down at a podium and just like start blathering on. And I don't know any of the people in that place and but I know like a fair amount of you and and so here I am speaking to kind of like my people that I see very often, including people that I work with and people that I love a lot, like Jose and Juliet. So it's a, it's a lot for me. So I'm going to talk today about um, third wave coffee. I never, it's also an, another reason <laughs> I'm slightly nervous because I don't really talk about this very much. I would like to congratulate us all. Because we've done it. We have completed the third wave. Yes. Right? No? Okay. Well, I mean, I think we have. And you're saying to yourself, well, hang on a minute, Trish. I think I just heard you saying a couple weeks ago that we were sort of in the middle of third wave or sort of just nearing the beginning of third wave, and it's very confusing for some of us to talk about third wave, so I thought I would just delve into it, because why the hell not? Uh, And begin with this congratulations to all of you. Well done. Wait a minute. What is? What was it? (laughs) Let's talk about what it was from my perspective, and I'll give you an idea of what happened to me when I was about 10 years already working in coffee from the 80s to... Um, late '80s into the through the '90s, and I moved to across the ocean to live in Norway. And when I got to Norway, I noticed things in about the 1999, 2000 things I had never seen before happening in coffee. After already being in the Bay Area coffee for 10 years, as a roaster and a barista and a manager and all those things you do in retail. So I started seeing these like exquisite little drinks coming across the counter and baristas that were serious about the craft and people that were just like, if you can't take it here as a customer, that's probably fine. There are other people that will serve you the coffee you want. It really wasn't that snooty, but uh, I mean, if you know some Norwegians, maybe you understand what I'm saying. Uh, that's that's kind of natural for them. So third wave of coffee for me uh, began as an idea as I noticed all these things happening in coffee and kind of compared them to what I knew about the San Francisco Bay Area, where, which has been my home my whole life. So third wave coffee describes for me how we take our coffee. So around the time, the turn of the millennia, I noticed that people were paying more attention to coffee. And so how we take our coffee and where we take our coffee tended to change. And so for me, the idea of waves, very much a large wave, a big change in what we were doing before, and that's how I describe the waves. And you can fill in the blanks yourself. You know what you do and try to make a great cup of coffee. You don't settle for something that's just what you've had before. You're making a lot of effort at the bar. You're making a lot of effort in choosing the coffees, blah, 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 blah. I don't have to tell you because, like I said, we already did it, so you already know what it is. How we take our coffee. Also, like I said before, it challenges what came before. So, like I said, I had already been in coffee for what seemed like enough time to understand everything I needed to know about coffee, but here I was confronted with this whole new revolution of amazing coffee in Norway and wasn't really able to figure out how to compartmentalize it until I just got kind of comfortable with the idea that everything I already thought I knew didn't really matter anymore and that all the new baristas and new roasters and new people I, were, I was meeting, they would say, oh, you've been in coffee? Oh, great. That's nice for you. We learned some things from you, but we're moving on now, and that's what I saw happening. Like I said, you can fill in the blanks. You know what I mean, because you've done it. In my estimation at the time, coming off of the 90s in the Bay Area, the coffee world of the 90s, was very... um, it It was a little bit heavy, because there were a lot of issues with the volatile market and changing coffee and coffee, the coffee in coffee lands and the people and the environment, and it was a lot. And right around that time in the 90s, we started using a lot of fair trade and organic coffees. And so at the time, at the, around the time I started thinking about this in 2001, 2002, I just said to myself, well, that that's gonna just continue, because it's on fire now. People love fair trade, people love organic, like everything's gonna be organic in the future. We're going to take care of the people with fair trade. And we're going to be all about the organic. And everything's just going to fall into place because that's kind of what they told us was going to happen. So uh, it concluded the solutions for coffee people and uh, all the solutions for the coffee lands. Awesome. There was nothing after third wave because what would there be after third wave? We've done everything. Thought of all the things. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Now stop questioning me. So what I'm going to do about during this presentation, I'm going to give you kind of back and forth between the waves and where the waves came from. So I should tell you where the waves came from. Uh, Why did I think about waves in coffee and what are the other waves? Well, at the time, I was reading And I'm certainly not a scholar in this area, but I was reading random articles about feminism, and there was some articles about third-wave feminism. And I said to myself, ooh, this is interesting, because it kind of reminds me of what I'm experiencing in coffee. And so I kind of used it as a model to move forward with the idea. So now, guess what? We're going to talk about feminism. That's so... This is the... I'm in the Bay Area right now. (laughs) I get to say things and people know me. It's kind of crazy. Okay, so uh, I had this idea about, and usually, you know, all of these years that I've been talking kind of about third wave, people say, where'd you get the idea? I'm like, oh, you know, like feminism? Anyway, and then I would just talk about coffee because it was like really very hard to talk about feminism to people who, you know, don't want to talk about feminism. So, uh, the, th- the three waves of feminism began with the suffragettes. Some of you know, but if you don't I'm just gonna tell you. The suffragettes uh, on the far left here, who fought for the rights of women to do things like own property, and have custody of their own children, and culminating in the idea that they could vote. Was sort of born out of the abolitionist movement in the United States, and by the way, the waves of feminism are supposed to describe feminism in the United States, specifically. It's not really supposed to translate to other places in the world, but like I said, you can talk to uh, Joanna about that later, uh, how it is in Sweden. So it um, started with this idea of fairness for all, but then it sort of unraveled towards they uh, where it all kind of hit the fan when they were really trying to push the idea of the vote. And unfortunately, a lot of the privileged white women who were involved in the suffrage ed movement would throw uh, black people under the bus as an example of, well, I mean, we should get the vote before any of these other people get anywhere near, right? And actually help to bring their, um, the res- the resolution they wanted, unfortunately. So obviously, after that happened, it was very uncomfortable for everybody, as you can imagine. And feminism sort of went dormant for a while until the early 60s. And you see in the middle, you have a picture of Gloria Steinem. I like that St- I like that version of Gloria Steinem with all the like the the hair. I like that. And I like the ones where she like wears the glasses like over her hair, you know those pictures? I like those, that, uh, I like that Gloria Steinem. And she's standing here with Dorothy Pit- Pittman Hughes who was not only an activist for women but um, spent a lot of time uh, on the issues of child welfare so and children in, in the United States. And so there was an increased awareness of all the other people that maybe didn't make their way into feminism before. So um, all the people who were non-white women that might benefit from a feminist approach to the world. And this came with it a lot of ideas. I'm not really here to talk too much about this. Suffice it to say that you might remember your mother or grandmother talking about women's lib women's lib, do you remember women's lib? That's like the old timey term for liberation of women. Uh, And this is the kind of thing that they were sort of pigeonholed into this area. On the right you see a picture of Rebecca Walker and this woman in the early 1990s uh, wrote and coined the phrase third wave feminism and in doing so she defined the first and second wave until at that time No one thought of them as waves, but I'm not going to talk about that until I go back to coffee. So let's talk about coffee a little bit in the first and second wave. I mostly want to actually talk about first wave a little bit because I think in this room a lot of us are pretty aware of what the second wave is. We can talk about it maybe in in Q&A a a little bit. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting to breathe. there's a lot I'm trying to get into this, and in this picture, in these pictures, these are ads that are about coffee along the lines of the first wave, and there's one here that sort of goes to second wave. But if you note, it's very important the selling coffee to the people who were going to be buying the coffee in the grocery store, which were women, and the the message was that you needed to please the people around you. Um, that you, as the person who made the coffee, was not really the, the prime consumer of the coffee. That it was your business to make sure that the person who consumed the coffee was happy. Not really you. Freshness was a big issue. Quality was even a big issue in the first wave. We did, we forget that. We found out that we could can coffee for the best possible solution for um, to keeping it stable and fresh. It's still the... The truth today, a canned cup of coffee will stay fresher than anything else if you need it to last a really long time. The first wave coffee was about consumption. So in this era, the first part of the last century, we learned that coffee could be had at all times of the day. You have it in the morning, you have it before lunch, you have it with lunch, you have it after lunch with a cake, and you have it after dinner. And anytime you want to meet somebody, you're meeting for coffee, or someone comes over your house, you have a coffee, 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 let's all have some coffee. So there were great things about the first wave. And um, I just wanted to take a minute to talk about that because we don't really think about all the great things that first wave coffee gave us. It gave us, over the course of all of these years, um, our habits that we still have today, I, th- I think, in my opinion. Right in the middle, you see a picture of an ad for Senka. Senka is an instant, in this case, it, I think it's an instant coffee that is decaffeinated. And this looks like a picture probably from like 75 or something like that, 1975. And uh, can't really read what they're saying, but I think like the lady is saying, I now work inside of the home and outside of the home. I have a lot to do as a women's libber, so I'm very pressured. I have a lot, to, very nervous all the time. And the guy the guy next to her with the jacket, he's like, I can help you out. I got this. Just need this Sanka and you're going to be fine. You can, you can do this. You can do this women's lib thing. So I'm not going to talk too much about Second Wave Coffee. A lot of times I think about, if you remember that show, Friends, which actually really wasn't a show that I watch very much because I was already too old for it. But in Friends, everyone had a big couch, just like Steven and Deaton and Katie are sitting there. They had giant cups of coffee and, and a chalkboard. This was second wave coffee. It taught us the words cappuccino. It taught us that coffee came from Guatemala, a lot of different places. We learned words that we didn't know before. Tremendous for us, second wave coffee. So, wait a minute, let's go back because I told you I was going to flip back from feminism to coffee and feminism to coffee. So let's talk about feminism in the third wave. Wait, what was Rebecca Walker trying to say? So on the left hand side, you see, you see sort of the list of what Rebecca Walker, if you remember, I had an idea about third wave coffee. She had an idea about third wave feminism. And it was supposed to sort of focus on queer and non-white women. Rebecca Walker herself I think identifies as biracial, bisexual, and Jewish in America, which is something you have to say in America. It uh, reconsiders gendered terms like bitch and whore, which were bad words before, but maybe not always bad words in the third wave. It regards race, class, LGBTQ rights, sexual liberation as central issues. But probably more important than anything else, and the very reason that Rebecca Walker says that she wrote about third wave feminism was to bring people back to feminism, which she knew wasn't done yet. Interestingly, some of you may or may not know that her mother, Alice Walker, also coined a feminist phrase. Uh, Does anyone know what that one is? She coined her own phrase around this time. She coined the phrase womanism. And in both cases, and I don't know if they kind of got together and planned this together or not, but womanism and third wave feminism was supposed to bring two different demographics back to uh, feminism, who in the past kind of felt turned off by what second wave was asking them to do. So how did it play out? Look at the picture on the right. This is a picture of um, a magazine cover, and I'm not really sure what date. Does it have a date on it? No. And you can have a look at what uh, was important to what, what the third wave sort of kind of evolved into. It became this idea of Riot girl, kind of um, we do what we want, when we want, we love who we want, we don't love people we don't want to love, we can be any size we want. All of these things here, do you note that something is missing from the Riot Girl manifesto, if, if we were to call this a manifesto? Something missing? It's a glaring omission, an erasure, maybe. In point two and four, for Rebecca Walker, we're missing the idea of race in America. So if you think about what may be the Riot Girl sort of movement, and I and I have to say, I admit that it sort of like got away from me. I was not really attracted to it. I was sort of outside that demographic. I wasn't really attracted to doing Riot Girl things like slut walks or... Um, some of these other things that were very important to that movement, it struck me as a ravel- sort of a privileged place to be, that you could be a riot girl and not be afraid to walk down the street with maybe just your bra on or nothing else on, and that you maybe wouldn't get incarcerated, maybe wouldn't get arrested for being you, because you actually had Protection of your race. So let's go back to coffee. So we talked about what I thought might happen with third wave coffee, but it, you know, and this is where you all can ha- develop an idea of what happened for you in third wave because you know we did it. It's all done, so we can look back on it and enjoy it. Some of you know this, um, know this tattoo that I've put up here. I felt comfortable putting that tattoo up because it's probably the best-known tattoo in coffee. Um, that tattoo, I, I looked online at all kind of pictures of coffee tattoos, and uh, I only bring it up because uh, it seems like every time someone writes about third wave coffee, they have to mention that the barista has tattoos, Deaton, all the way up their arm as if that's part of the coffee story, but it it might be because there's a lot of coffee tattoos. This is one of them, belongs to Sam Penix, and he lives in New York City. A lot of you know and love him. But the third wave of coffee, to me, sort of became about personal expression and all about the personal being the political. So anything that you acted out or pushed in coffee was really about how you were engaging with coffee as a coffee professional, or what you wanted to do at your cafe, and what you wanted to do in coffee. Almost as if to say that if you could be exactly what you wanted to be, it would be enough to change all of the problems we have in coffee. And here are some other examples. We changed the idea of what our cafes looked like. That doesn't look like Central Perk in the show Friends. We started doing little pour overs, I think uh, the last time I really spoke a little bit about third wave coffee, it was in 2006 when I wrote an article for Barista Magazine. And, and that was all about how the, the, uh, the clover machine <laughs> was going to just be awesome for third wave coffee. I think I wrote something about that in that article. But it turned out pour overs were a big deal and still are today a very personal way to enjoy coffee and engage with coffee. And then the way we acquired our coffee was very one-on-one. But we didn't continue really working very hard on accepting or hammering out the problems of that we may have identified with fair trade coffee or certified coffee certifications. A lot of us maybe cherry picked those things and found reasons why it didn't apply to us. It didn't make a difference for specialty coffee. Um, these are questions that we can all have out together over a drink later. Uh, but I don't know if that's true. I don't know if you can point to fair trade and say that wasn't good for specialty coffee. I don't know if you can point to direct trade and say that's the solution. It's very one on one. It's very about all about me. Okay, now I'm going to switch back to feminism. I was very inspired this last year to learn more about movements and feminism because they're a very wonderful group of young, dynamic women who are not sort of waiting until the time is right to speak. They're just speaking their minds now and applying these ideas about social justice to the coffee power structures that we see around us. And they brought us a term called intersectionality, which I admit I didn't spend much time knowing about until a couple years ago. Intersectionality was coined by, term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. Interestingly, predates third wave feminism. And you know now why there really wasn't a place for non-white women in third wave feminism because they were trying to work on something else that meant more to them perhaps, but I wasn't really aware of it until recently. Kimberly Crenshaw is a law professor at UCLA and at Columbia University, and uh, she actually developed this term specifically to deal with a legal issue and that women who were both black and women had a hard time arguing uh, their legal, the legal terms for oppression, or the idea that they would be oppressed on two different levels. In other words, the intersection of those two things. And she, Kimberly Crenshaw, was specifically interested in black women. Uh, and uh, more recently, uh, has been working a lot more with the hashtags, hashtag say her name, uh, Campaign which is very important to her. I think that from what I've learned about her uh, doing as much as research as I can About her is that she's happy to include all comers into intersectionality, but her main focus specifically is is about uh, black women in America specifically So now I'm gonna switch back to coffee so, another question I get, besides the questions about uh, third wave, I get a lot of questions about uh, the Wrecking Ball logo. And what does that mean? Is it just something cute? And, and what's it about? Well, my partner and I were very interested at the time in the idea of this tiny toy-like um, rig and the idea that if we looked at it and we remembered it every day, it would help to remind us that we can slowly but surely chip away at things and change things for ourselves, but also for others. And uh, if we ever feel like we're going astray, we kind of look at this little wrecking ball and we remind ourselves like why we're even in business uh, and what makes it interesting for us and make what makes it worth our while. So we believe that the wrecking ball, even though most people would think of it as something that breaks things down, we think of it as something that clears paths and chips away at things such as really huge power structures that maybe seem overwhelming and hard to deal with. Is there a place for this kind of thinking in coffee? Of course there is. And we can think about race and gender, which has been brought up by many of uh, the talks we saw. And um, uh, I I would be be remiss if I didn't mention last year's talks in New York, which were really phenomenal to understand. I'm talking about the temper tantrum talks specifically. So go back to those and uh, look at all of those and listen to all of those multiple times. It taught me a lot and I'm learning all the time. We're learning about how the economic structure, the power structure is something that we deal with in coffee. Um, Everyone that we've heard from today has told us there are elements of that. We're also dealing with climate issues. Is this an intersection? Uh, One of the ones that is something that's really on my mind a lot are these, the wars and the unrest and the trouble that the people in coffee lands are having just to live their lives without war around them and how do they rebuild things like their farms. And so the more I thought about these two ideas, as I did in my presentation, I'm giving the waves, the coffee, Feminism, the coffee, back and forth, and I've always kind of thought as the feminism as a model for coffee, and I've sort of watched it kind of happen next to each other. But I want to offer to you the idea that they are now one and the same. And if we think about breaking down power structures that might be impeding our development as human beings... And even as coffee people, that we can all do kind of a little bit to kind of break those barriers down. Thanks.
1: Please come join us, Chris. We've got a mic here. Um, I think we all felt um, the power of that talk and kind of how personal that was and I just want to thank you for sharing that with us I think that was amazing
0: thanks I sometimes I just think about stuff and I take a
1: minute it's a lot it it, it was it was very powerful I think um, I think everybody who knows you kind of like knows you have very strong opinions on, on feminism and, and also on, 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 racism and, and, and many other topics that we face in the specialty coffee industry. Um, and you know, we've done the third wave thing, as you said, so
0: congratulations, yeah. everybody.
1: You're welcome. <laughs> um, but like we obviously. We are at that intersection where we, 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 we. There's no fourth way. It doesn't feel like the fourth way is coming. Like it's not on the horizon. Um, and we still have all of these problems. What are our next steps? What do we do? What, what, what do you see as the solutions to keep m- this, this movement that has been very positive in many ways, um, on the right path and going forward to address the problems? As you see them.
0: Yeah, I think that. Um for what it's worth, I think it—we really needed to have third-wave coffee, and we needed to really explore what we wanted to be. So I don't feel like it was a, um, some kind of failed attempt at solving problems. I think it was a natural progression of things. This is how we move through these things. I—this is my again. These are all just my opinions. That doesn't mean they're the only opinion, just because I'm the one that says them out loud. <laughs> uh, Uh, In My opinion that it was a it was a good thing to have a third wave and people always ask me like what's the third wave as if I'm the one that knows like I'm the wave oracle or something but all of us are that I think I think we all could be wave oracles. I don't think I honestly don't think that's why I said in the first one of the first slides is I don't think there is a fourth wave. I think that instead we have to look at how we view all the things not only in our daily lives but uh, how we engage with coffee. And I'll tell you a little story. This is a little story that didn't make it into my talk because my talk's already a little bit too long so I had to cut a lot of things out. But uh, one of my first trips, I think it was my first trip to a coffee land. It was to Nicaragua. And I was shown this very, very impressive specialty coffee farm and had a wet mill on the farm. Excuse me. And it was beautiful, it was organic. And uh, we were shown all the entire ecosystem in this most beautiful pastoral scenes and cows pooping and eating the grass and everything was working all perfectly. And then in the corner, there was this big bubbly thing. It was like a tarp with like a bubble under it. And they told me this is the biodigester that uh, metabolizes all the coffee fruit. And from this, we get a certain amount of gas and this gas we thought was going to be great because it was going to fuel some of our big machinery at the mill we were all excited but you know what It failed. it doesn't work so we're kind of bummed about that we're still doing biodigesters because it's kind of interesting to do and anyway great so we walked from there and they said oh by the way in here you see some of the ladies on the farm cooking in this kitchen and went in there, and sure enough, they were using the gas from the biodigester. So I was like to my house, myself, I'm saying, I thought you said this was a failure. It was only a failure in one context. It doesn't operate the machinery on the, on the farm premises, but it helps the ladies cook the food. So, you know, it's just a different way of looking at things. Can you think about things in a different way at every time it's presented to you? Is that really a failure? What's the, what's the cost and the time and the trouble it takes a woman to stoke a fire, to cook the food for the people who are working? That's a great actual development in that situation. So that's one example of how to look at things in a way that there are people around you are not looking at it that way. So just be observant, I guess
1: should we ask some get some audience questions um, would anybody like to ask Trish a question looking for hands you did an awesome job thank you yeah no everybody is fully aware of everything that you wanted to say and they're has no questions they're just glad because they're done with yeah. their wish <laughs> uh, thank you hi um, I'd like to ask a question about, you said that when
0: we as a coffee industry started taking the personal to be our, you know, like, we're going to make coffee better if we ourselves reach our own personal highest potential, and yet that really misses a lot of systemic um, oppressions that are in place no matter how much a person's potential is, do you think that a personal thing we could all do is to maybe not focus on ourselves so much? And what kind of systemic structural things um, do you think are the most accomplishable to, to level? Yeah, that's a good question. Not just looking at things a different way whenever they're presented to you but also participating in things. We had a great talk from Hannah this morning, and that kind of thing can't happen without the whole industry participating. And so while there are some of us who are happy to have very healthy livelihoods and have very successful business lives, we have to recognize that those people are living, uh, doing their work kind of on the backs of everyone else that's in there working on stuff. Am I wrong? Tell me if I'm wrong, but there are people, we're standing on the shoulders of people. In some way, we're standing on the shoulders of first wave and second wave, right? We're standing, specialty coffee, I say this all the time out loud, specialty coffee as we know it today stands on the shoulders of fair trade and organic coffee, which happened in the 90s and made us look closely at our growing practices and produced some delish coffee. And from that, in some ways unfortunately made themselves obsolete because those growers learned how to do things in a way that created a specialty project but think about it. We stand on the shoulders of things that happened before us. So in that way can we move forward and kind of contribute because we know people are Hannah's told us. It's coming. It's coming for us. How do we prepare ourselves. Now is the time to prepare ourselves thinking in this way. Hi, Trish. So we're also, in my opinion, standing on the shoulders a lot, uh, the specialty industry of um, commodity coffee and the infrastructure of commodity coffee. So where do you feel like there's an entry point? Or where should we be more considerate of non-Uber specialty coffee within the specialty industry? I MEAN, I CAN ONLY, MY ANSWER IS GOING TO BE SLIGHTLY DERIVATIVE OF MAYBE THINGS I'VE HEARD KATIE CARJULO SAY MOST RECENTLY. Uh, FOR EXAMPLE, THAT WE ARE, WE ARE BUYING SPECIALTY GRADE LOTS THAT ARE SEPARATED OUT FROM LOTS, WHICH WILL MAKE OUR LOTS VERY NICE, BUT ALSO MAKES THE REMAINDER COFFEE NOT AS NICE AS IT MAYBE ONCE WAS. DO WE HAVE A PLAN FOR THOSE COFFEES? It's something I've heard Katie talk a lot about. Some people call them commodity coffees. Uh, the last time I spoke at Tamper Tantrum was in Vienna, the year 2012.
1: They lost tapes.
0: And they lost the tapes. It was a boring talk. It was a very technical talk. And it was a talk about uh, zero defect coffee, which no one wants to remember because it's a very uncomfortable subject. What is zero de- de- defect coffee? I believe there are many uh, technological advances not only uh, ones that are super, super high-tech that are hard for us to figure out ourselves as regular coffee workaday people, but also ways that we can train ourselves to be better. Uh, Professor Ristenpart helped us with that today. How do you get better at tasting? And how do you get better at identifying things you don't want in coffee so that we can bring that message back to technology so they can solve these problems? So it's not really a matter of sorting the coffee and losing a bunch of yield in the sorting, but to actually create coffee that has far less defects to begin with, which Hannah has told us we need to do. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of work to be done. I don't know if that's a long-winded answer, but not a commodities expert. I had a question. It might be a kind of a bad one, but in coffee there is kind of a prevailing... Um, trend that everything old becomes new again, and we're constantly relearning lessons. So just from your sort of scope of the industry, again, I'm sorry to put you on the spot about this, but is there like one thing that you wish that coffee professionals just like inherently would understand, believe, and kind of move on from questioning? (laughs) It's a big one, I know. I think the one and this is definitely tainted by my uh, other side hustle that some of you know I do which is Q teaching Q program and uh, the grading of green uh, coffee on a specialty scale. I would like for people to stop finding the reasons why they think that we don't calibrate on quality. It's almost as if people just want to argue that point till they're blue in the face. Oh, we don't, oh, it's all subject, even people, even the most trained and expert cuppers really aren't, always consistent. They always want to chip away at this idea that we don't know how to do our jobs. It's one thing to get highly trained by Professor Ristenpart and Davis which I look forward to many of you doing and a lot of us uh, coming to coffee through that but there are people who every day cup cups and cups and cups and cups and cups of coffee and they calibrate with people across the world who told them this is a 85 with notes of flowers and lemon. And we taste it in San Francisco, California, and we say, yep, it's actually an 85.5. And it has notes of flowers and lemon. So when people tell you, oh, it's all bogus, cuppers don't really know how to agree with each other, I'm kind of tired of that because I've seen it with my own eyes. So that's enough of that. And we've done it. Congratulations. We did that too. Thank you. (laughs)
1: Trish, as always, inspirational, uh, motivational, and exceptional. Thank you so much for a great presentation. Please, big round of applause for Trish.